take a look at this kid. Fifty-two of them. Take a good look at him, Raymond. Look at him, and while you're looking, listen. This is me, Marco, talking. Fifty-two Red Queens and me are telling you, you know what we're telling you? It's over. The links, the beautifully conditioned links are smashed. They're smashed as of now because we say so. Because we say they ought to be smashed. We're busting up the joint. We're tearing out all the wires. We're busting it up so good, all the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men will never put old Raymond back together again. You don't work anymore. That's an order. Anybody invites you to a game of solitaire, you tell them, sorry, buster, the ball game is over. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 11. Tom, the last episode before we get to what is genuinely considered like an actual top list. Like most time top lists are, uh, you know, top tens. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people go a little weird. They go a little crazy. We went a little very crazy with our top 100 because we think we're indie wire. No, 100 is good. No, 100 is an even number, but it's, it's pretentiously... Large. Now is the, tis the season. Turgid. Yeah, tis the season when people start putting out gift guides, and there'll be like the top thirty-three gifts for whatever, and you're just like thirty-three. Like, did you just? Could you only come up with thirty-three gifts? Is that why it's thirty-three? Like, what the fuck? Why make round this number out to mean something? Absolutely. That's insane. Um, but you know, top ten. Top ten is uh the David Letterman number, right? Mm-hmm. He was a person. At one point. It's going to be weird. You know what's going to be weird about it, too? Is that there's so much work that you haven't done yet. Like, from a, from a like, you know, your direct, your big directors. There's so many things we haven't discussed that we are just kind of hanging over our head. Well, I think, yeah. You know what there's, I mean? what, three films to but come there's... in my, three of my films in my top ten are directed by the same people. And two of them we already talked about, and essentially that part of the episode for me was just like, I have so many things to say about it, and I'm going to not say any of them. Well, one of those things happened today. Like That's true. I yeah, exactly. talked about it a while ago, uh, back in September of last year. That's I true. That was a long time ago. I finally decided to re-listen to episodes where we Oh, talked. did you re-listen to it? I, I re-listened to it, um, just to make sure I have my points in order. Mm-hmm. And because I approached the film... At your 11 differently now, mm. given the circumstances of time. Oh, um, yeah. It still works as, as for people who are long-time listeners, cinema therapy for me, but that cinema therapy has evolved. Um, you shave it, your head. No, I just stopped shaving my face. <laughs> Although I have a nice little neckline going on here. You know what has evolved, too, is uh, beers. Beers just... Going crazy because we are continuing down our road of insanity as we face the end of the pivotal film list. And maybe the world. We'll be fine. 95%. 95%, man. Unless you mean the Western world, which is potential. Uh, I was looking around for a weird beer, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't find one incredibly weird. Um, 
This one, I think, pales in comparison to our Hellboy pancake beer. But it's a lot. today, it's a lot in it. What's cold? Mm. This was the first true winter day we had here in the Pivotal Film Tower here in New Haven, Connecticut. Yep. It got down to like, I think the high was 36 degrees today. And I was like... And it was windy. You know, I was talking to a friend and, I, and, and she told me, you know, this, this feels like a day where I want to go into a bar or a Christmas store somewhere where I could sit around a hearth, a fire. And that made me think of, you know, it's good to sit around a campfire. Ooh. And our... Good friends, not at all good friends, at Dogfish Head, because they're a, basically a macro brewery at this time, uh, have made Campfire Amplified, which is a milk stout, which has a s'more-inspired take on it, because it is a milk stout brewed with marshmallow and graham crackers, not the craziness of the 6.66% Goliath. Was that Goliath that did the Hellboy brew? I don't know. Oh, um, yeah, they were uh, I don't, they're from I don't, Portland. Where were it, they? Oh, it was Portland, Oregon? Yeah. So it wasn't Toppling Goliath. I thought it might have been Toppling Goliath. No, they're I don't out remember. Of Iowa. But not as crazy as that maple pancake beer. Pancakes, Hellboy's favorite yep. food. But, uh, you know, in this path of craziness that we go on, close enough. Well, Think it. This is 6.5%, I believe, and a milk stout. I always enjoy milk stouts. Mm. I continue to enjoy milk stouts. Good. That is tasty. Yeah. It is. It hints at the marshmallow. Deceivingly heavy, for sure. Um, It feels, it's got a nice mouthfeel, though. It has a nice feel, but you can tell that this is something that will, you know, weigh on you. I, I don't necessarily mean it's a booziness, but... It's we have a six pack here. After three of these, I would be decidedly stomach full. I'm still getting a fucking sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, when you say the marshmallow, the marshmallow comes off really well at the end. It has that very, toasted marshmallow. Yeah, finish. very subtle. It just kind of it's just there. It just lingers there. It kind of finishes really nicely. Do, it's do a good get, beer. Do we get graham cracker? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back in now. Mm. I mean, a touch of the spiciness of graham cracker, and I say spiciness with the utmost of, you know, obvious. Yeah, I don't know. But I don't, I, know. I don't necessarily get graham cracker, but it's a really good milk stout with a lot well of marshmallow yeah. flavor. Well, one of Dogfish Head has Do- kind of come through for us in a couple of a couple Dogfish of times. Dogfish Head has never failed to disappoint me. Mm-hmm. I mean, never. Wait, that's incorrect. Has never failed to impress me well they've been they're always interesting so even yeah. if they do something really fucking weird it's at least a, it's a, something that you probably haven't tasted before like their Midas touch you ever have the Midas touch it's a we, totally weird idea for a beer and it tastes odd but it also tastes like something you ha, like have never encountered before what I feel is unique about dogfish head especially for what teeters on a macro brew also dogfish head Coming from the home of President-elect. Oh, yeah, so it works perfectly. Um, the thing that works about Dogfish Head is an incredible balance for me. Uh, I think their most famous line of beers right now where they're 60... They're, they're yeah, the IPA 60, series. Yeah, um, and going from 60 to 75 to 90 to 120-minute IPAs, all of them get more robust in flavor. But the thing that works about all of them is just an amount of balance, an mm-hmm. amount of symmetry, and that continues here. Um, Dogfish Head also did the beer 
re-drank during the At Eternity's Gate episode. Um, there was the Miles Davis, the Bitches Brew. Yeah, the Bitches Brew. Yeah. And that had a unique... Had a lot of stuff it. going on in there, going but on it, it was it, good. Everything balanced yeah. out. Um, and Dogfish Head just continues. Like That's probably why it's... It's, it's kind of felt like, I don't know if they got bought out, but it's definitely been a brewery that's kind of like rosen from the masses because I think they just have a real finger on the pulse of, of, of what a beer drinker wants. But here's the thing. So do you... This is the longest we've talked about beer for a while. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that... Do you pick dogfish? Because like, I would never... If I went into a liquor store or a package store... Or liquor store is called. What do they call them in, the, in Nevada? Liquor store. Liquor store. Um, if, if I was confronted with all the different kinds of beers, my I would never go like, eh. I often, I have a bunch of like emergency beers that I would pick before IPA Dogfish is, is one on, of yours. Is one of mine. Um, when I want something with the hoppiness but not the malt complexity of a Sea Hag, because mm. um, Sea Hag has a bit. Of like a, a multi finish, mm-hmm. I will go for a sixty minute because the sixty minute is just very hop forward, mm-hmm. and is one of the few kind of cheaper beers that is hop forward. Mm-hmm. So a sixty minutes kind of on my list. Yeah, interesting. Um, interesting. No, I I, I would say d- uh, for a major brewery, Dogfish Head continues to be one of my my favorites. Hmm. And uh, I, the only reason I did choose this today was it was the closest to a weird beer I could find. There's a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what we're doing now. Yeah, I want to pack beers that pack pack it in. Yeah, we want beers that just kind of take multiple personalities and just jam them into one being. You know, you take from the left, you take from the right, you take from man, you take from woman, and you just dump it all in there, and then you stab a fat guy in the stomach 17,000 times. Oh, man. And that's what Ree did this week when Ree watched... Jingle Jangle. (laughs) Uh, Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? What's with you today? What do you mean? I'm in place. Can we help you? Finish this. What are you doing? I can't pull the trigger. Um, I don't know how we want to refer to Andrea Risborough now. Um, she's developing some kind of a weird niche for herself where she is uh, playing these really tortured um, people. In, in these movies. So we had Mandy a couple of years ago. She's in that uh, Amazon show. Is it 000? Um, I have not. Seen or is zero, it? Zero. It's 000, or it's the um, Nicholas Wendt. It is 000. Yeah, which is apparently a very tough show. And now she finds herself in Possessor here, and she plays uh, Tasia Voss, who is a kind of operative who works for this company that uh, can. Send people into other people's minds, kind of their 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 body. They can inhabit their 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 being, and uh, 
there are uh, they're assassins. She's an assassin. She goes and she kills people. I don't know. I guess I, I, we couldn't. We don't have to say assassins. I guess they're assassinating them. But I guess some of these people don't even really seem all that. In, are they? Is it considered an assassination? Is like a mafia lawyer like considered an assassin? Assassination? I guess it is. No, it doesn't matter. It's, they're assassinations. It's sure. Like, okay. Um, John Gotti committed assassinations on. I suppose on that's crime true. Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Tasia Voss's boss is played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, which uh, which is a nice little touch. I love um, the entire inhabitation of the body. Uh, kind of screams back to you know his father's existence. Mm, and you mm. know you get, you get Jennifer Jason Lee coming back there. Well, Jennifer Jason Lee is is one of my kind of oh, we'll talk about it. I didn't love Jennifer Jason Lee in here. She seems a little disinterested and like a little spacier than she really, <laughs> than she really probably should be. Um she's been charged with uh with going into the body of uh Colin Tate who is the fiance of Sean Bean's daughter, Ava. Ava, not played Ava. by Tuppence Middleton. Um, and Sean Bean operates a data mining company, and so basically they use their kind of their uh, what are the things now? What does Google Google has a what does Google things? What's Amazon's? What are their little fucking pods oh. that are all over your house? What are they even called? You're I don't know. About the Alexas? Yeah, 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 the Alexas. But they're with cameras, and they and this company looks into your house. Well, make sure of that and webcams. I, I sure, sure. That. But I think it's I think it's it's more of a more of an Alexa style thing. Alexa style thing. His entire job centers around naming off curtains, curtains, mostly. and or just or looking into people's apartments and naming off things, and uh, you know, assuming whatever they do with data mining, and this is not going to be a data mining episode, so we're not going to go into that. And so they you know, obviously they sell that stuff, and this is Zoo Through is obviously a huge company. Uh, Sean Bean lives in a in a, a mansion, palatial mansion that may have been the same mansion from the first episode of Shit's Creek, by the way. Oh, really? It looks exactly. Like I the actually, same. when I was and thinking of considering they're both Canadian productions. Very likely. I was thinking of um, Sorry to Bother You. Also, Sorry to Bother You Mansion. Potentially the same. Could have been the same thing. Um, Toronto's offering a lot of those tax breaks. That's true. Um, Voss, though, is having some problems in herself. So, the, you know, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's girder, which I think is funny, um, tells her, like, if there's any cracks, you know, in, your, in her kind of, like, self... And I want to talk. I want to talk about one of the things with, with, with these self cracks um, that it's going to be a problem. You know, I mean, she has to be full. She has to be all the way there. And there is a crack, and that is that Voss has a, a, a husband, and he, she has a son who she's separated from, but she's seeing again, and she feels all these. She feels all these emotions about them. She wants to go, and she doesn't want to go, and she wants to be close to them, but she doesn't want to be close and to she them. Has, and she has a consciousness, has has demonstrated right. by her remembrance of the butterfly. Um, yep. Not epitaph, but you know. Um, and so the cracks start to show, and she starts to kind of falter inside of Colin, and, and she starts to, uh, she kind of loses control of him, and he like seems to exert, you know, some of his his own free will at various times, and um, this whole time, Brandon Cronenberg's doing a lot of stuff that, you know. Some of the stuff that his dad kind of did. You know what I mean? There's uh, a lot he, of... I think he's doing a lot of Jonathan Glazer things here. Well, so there's there's that too, but there's some of the... Some of the, like, practical effects here are very... 
David Cronenbergian. I'm thinking of when remember when they kind of split when like they're in that it's like a red they're in in his head it's like uh, three quarters of the way through the movie and then like their faces kind of yeah, their faces kind of split that's all very Cronenbergian it's, it has a dead it has a tactileness it has a dead to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of feel to um, it hilarity ensues <laughs> and a lot of people end up dying very very violent deaths and by the end of the movie you're not 100% sure they, they all really happened. This is not a his house thing. Where like you're kind of, is it is it in their head? Is it? It all it's all happened. There's a lot of dead people, but it's a question as to who killed them, and why, and that's where the movie kind of leaves you. I'm. I know your thoughts. I don't know what. Do you what want I me to do. lead with my thoughts? No, then? I don't. I mean, I guess so. So mine, yeah, go. I think I think this is an exceptionally sound film from a production standpoint and from a storytelling standpoint. I think, as though there aren't many questions from my perspective as to who is committing these murders and how, because mm-hmm. there is a lot of story-stound attempts at saying so. Um, all the deaths of men are committed with really intense violence. Mm-hmm. Um, every single man that dies in this film at the hands of Voss is done so with her own physicality mm. um, or is attacked with the own physicality from uh, outside, outside of the sun um, mm-hmm. at the end. Um, whereas every woman who's killed is killed with a gunshot. Every single one mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, Ava to Rita to Hall, you know, even though she's supposed to kill herself as Holly uh, when she's unable to, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's a it's, it's a really tactile sound from a story, a visual, and from a directorial standpoint. I, however, have no interest in this film because I find this kind of nouveau approach to nihilistic filmography uh, that's kind of Rosen from the ashes of Jonathan Glazer and, to a smaller extent, Bradley Corbett, and to an extreme extent... Alex Garland to be tiresome. Mm. I, I find it to be reductive. I find it to not actually extol, extol the um, components of the human experience to reduce them to parts that don't really feel tactile. Um, and so for a emotional experience, this film is a nightmare for me. Mm. For an intellectual experience as a film viewer, it's a delight. But from a from approaching it in a way where I could feel next to it, um, whether that be through discomfort or comfort, mm-hmm. I feel nothing except disinterest. My so my is that the most positive negative review I've done? I don't. No, know. I think it's very. <laughs> we've done. I think you've done other stuff like that. It's and I kind of feel I I. I feel more strongly positive about this movie than you do, but I also kind of agree with you in the sense that the movie that kept coming into my head when I was watching this, or towards the end of it when I kind of assumed how it was going to... I didn't, maybe didn't know the plot machinations of how it was going to turn out, but I kind of you have a sense of where it's going to go and whether or not things, certain things will be resolved or whatever, or, or the manner in which they're going to be resolved is uh, The Lighthouse. And remember the conversation we had about the lighthouse, which was essentially, this movie's awesome, but I have no idea why it exists. Mm-hmm. 
other than the fact that someone had an idea to make this movie and then they made it and it like you said it's um technically proficient to almost the point of brilliance in 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 certain in some scenes but it's got there's nothing there there's no larger idea and i don't need to to be this is not like a a social justice warrior thing this is not like a social commentary thing yeah i'm just i'm trying to like remove all of that stuff that i'm not looking for it's that the aesthetic is not tied to any kind of larger idea about anything so it's, it exists in a vacuum of itself. So the when it, when it's talking about identity, it's literally just talking about Voss's identity versus this guy's identity, or Voss's emotions versus this guy's emotions. And in the context of the film, in the world of the film, I guess it works narratively. Like it's not like a narrative hole or anything like that. But it's a very empty feeling because it's the movie doesn't do like you said it doesn't do anything to kind of bring you to it it's content to stay on its side of the screen while you stay on your side of the screen so all you can do is marvel at the technical excellence of this film while also being like you know i should feel something when she shoots a kid but i didn't feel anything i should feel something when he twists that fucking that you know um the fire poker into Sean Bean's mouth and twist his teeth out and then twist his eye out. But I didn't really feel even kind of when you said it was you texted me and you were like, Oh, it wasn't that gory. It was it was because of the gore was a it, gore was attached to an emotion, a, a narrative context in the movie, but it wasn't attached to like a larger context that I could feel. And I think that's that that is a, the real disservice of this film is the fact the biggest disservice I should say is the fact that the opening of this movie is fucking brilliant mm-hmm. um gabriel graham's performance as holly in mm-hmm. like the opening eight minutes of this film mm-hmm. and like her crying as she's kind of doing the uh reconfiguring the recentering or whatever yeah um i can't remember the exact term Recalib- um, recalibration yeah. um and and then even to like the visceralness when voss is just uh, evi- you know, eviscerating um that that target um Versus, like, the way, like, Holly's fighting against the suicide and mm-hmm. then eventually the death by cop. You get, like, a real emotional sense. And I, I think, yeah. like, Gabriel Grams delivers maybe... And, and this isn't to a disservice to Andrea Riseborough, who I think does well. I think Chris Abbott does really amazingly. But, like, that's such a fucking powerful performance in that beginning that you really get emotionally attached to the woman that inhabits Holly. And that is the closest... The closest Brandon Cronenberg ever lets you get to anybody, and the fact that you feel that much emotion for this person, um, and then that's immediately followed by this real cool distance, yep. is bothersome to me because of the fact that, like, one, the narrative wants you to follow Voss. It's not necessarily wanting to sympathize with Voss, but it's just asking you to follow Voss's kind of descent through deconditioning yeah. of the personality. It's it's. 100% not trying to make a, a statement on the human condition or whatnot. It's a lo-fi sci-fi that is talking about a person's disintegration of identity through repeated yeah. tasks and whatnot. It, it is not at all trying to make a statement on the human condition. But you have such a really sound and proficient performance in the beginning that's anchored by really solid direction and really solid storytelling that connects you emotionally. You're telling the viewer, this is the type of movie we are. And then you completely disconnect from that, and 
what I texted you when I was watching it was, I don't like this movie because it's meanness. Mm-hmm. And because the entire time I was watching this, I was just thinking back to that opening going like, I want that emotional depth. Well, I want that emotional core. Because I think this movie can do that. And I think there's a better movie in here that touches these themes. The Possessor entire theme is really interesting of a premise. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's an interesting premise from a human standpoint. It's an interesting premise from a conflicted idea standpoint. The, the moments in which Colin and Tassa's um, minds are kind of melding back and forth and, and fighting back and forth have a lot of potential. But they've got to have a reason. You yeah, have to have a reason they, for me and, to care. And they could. And they, but they could. Right, you they can could. look at this. It's, it's not necessarily something you look at and go like, oh, that's not the intent of what it was doing because the film opens with something that brings no, you right, yeah. down to, right down to the human condition and then it just abandons well, the intent, frustration. The intent is there. It's just in, The intent is, is evident in the aesthetic. It's just, yeah, there's no, there's no emotional core. And I get Brandon Cronenberg doesn't have to make a movie that has an emotional core. No, antiviral his, lacks that. And his works. dad has made tons of movies that have no emotional core. You know what I mean? Um recently he's made tons of movies that have no emotional core. Like Cosmopolis has no emotional core. Um, Maps of the Stars. Yeah, that's, you know, they're... Well, his most recent films. They're cool. They're they're Cronenberg movies. They're cool. But they don't do... They don't, they don't move you. I think this movie's problem is... Goes beyond the first scene. It's the first three scenes establish... It establishes... And this I want to... There's like something contained within this that I want to talk about too. Um... You have the first scene, which is perfect. You have the second scene when she's going through the box, which it perfectly kind of establishes what this, not what the company is about, but what the idea of this film is. There's It's a, a loss of self, you know what I mean? They're trying Absolutely. to make sure she can hang on to that. And then there's the scene at, there's the stuff at home where Andre Risborough is really trying to um, be somebody specific that she to be this person that she wants to be for these people. They're, they, they are, she's outside rehearsing right, kind there's, of what she's going to say. These people put a certain emotional expectation on top of her that she is trying to match. And then literally, as soon as she is taken away from that, all the emotion of this, all the emotion like kind of just like leaks out of this movie. So then you're just kind of stuck with some amazing visuals and some gr- pretty grisly violence. Although, I think one of the flaws of this movie is that a lot of the violence happens to people on the floor like so she he hasn't um figured out a way to kind of translate that level of ultra violence to to action to movement yeah no that's that's it it's movement um a lot of the kind of ultra violence uh, and i I don't you know not necessarily you don't want to look into the sense of 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 complaining about the destruction of body it because I, I don't want to compare Brandon Cronenberg to his father just because it was me. No, 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 Same. no. But I think – it's not a criticism against him. Maybe it's a criticism to the criticism is the fact that a lot of the talks of the violence of the film kind of say like the grisliness of it. But it's not. It's, it's a lot of stillness to the to the violence. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, two, of the mo- two of the more violent scenes – not more violent, but two of the violent scenes kind of occur – in still motion, like mm-hmm. in the death of Rita and Eddie, they're, they're still kind of moved moments. Um, I'm just thinking of the uh, the opening guy, the lawyer, Sean Bean, and then um, the husband are all on the floor. Yeah. They're all being hacked with some kind of sharp implement um, from a position of position of dominance. Um, 
which is fine and I guess it works contextually. It's just uh, it lacks a kind of um, activity beyond like an arm swinging uh, that makes it like less interesting. It lacks a primalness, which I think this film tries to delve into. Well, and I think the character, I think the actors try to convey that stuff with their bodies, but the yeah. camera's not. The camera's not doing any of that yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. It's not I, I joining think, them in that experience. I think there's like this this primal motion that Toss is supposed to have. Mm-hmm. It's this enjoyment of... I don't think there's enough of her in this movie either. Oh, I think she sure. disappears. When she disappears, it's for good reason narratively. But you want as much Andre Risborough as you can as you can get. Exactly. Because she's, 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 she's emotive in the moments that she has. And there's the, the supreme question of kind of like the... Um, juxtaposition of the violence that she does unto men and the violence she does unto women, mm-hmm. which is something that's narratively unexplored. But when she's really kind of going after, quote-unquote, the target, well, there's a pun- whether that be yeah. like the lawyer or uh, John or her husband mm-hmm. kind of in the end, um, there's there's a real animosity a real brutality to it that she's ex- that you know either she or the person she's inhabiting is exploring but as you said like the static motion of the camera doesn't do anything to exhibit that and, right and there's there's a, a an appreciation um an adoration of of the moment of violence like when she's kind of like dipping her feet in the the sneakers and the blood mm-hmm. that she's inhabiting Holly that yep. kind of just isn't really explored emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because the men are being punished in some way while the women, I think, are being put out of their misery. You know what I mean? Like, almost like sick dogs. Exactly, but there's no narrative but, explanation. Exactly, and, and there's no narrative explanation, but there's also nothing consistent with playing with your... Like, I guess, I guess you could be, like, reveling in, like, the execution of this bad person but they don't play it like that and so again it's another opportunity it's yeah, another michael and john aren't necessarily awful human beings no no no. but like maybe it's just perceived that way because of of the expectations that voss kind of uh perceives from from males or or just from people that are close to her you know what I mean? Where she's she has this job, and these people are getting close to her and making it difficult to do this job. I mean, there's there's certainly the, the, the one untapped narrative thread I saw in this film is its proximity to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, watching this and rewatching this, do not know what Cronenberg's intent was there. Uh, the the moment when he kind of when Voss kind of stutters, mm-hmm. watching the man have sex with a woman through the web camera, mm-hmm. like that. There is a narrative intent there, and mm-hmm. it's not just for uh, provocation, you know, being provocative in terms of uh, kind of graphic sex scene, because there there is a sexuality mm-hmm. that is prevalent throughout this film. There's a graphic sex scene during its middle, which is really intimate. Um, and has an actual kind of human nature to it. It's it's not it doesn't have it's not pornographic. Um, the sex scene between you know Voss inhabiting Colin and Ava. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. That's going to be there's two scenes in this that are probably going to be on my top ten moments of the year, and one of them is like the melting scene, like the transition from mm-hmm. from Voss to um, to Colin. 
is kind of incredible. Um, and, like, the Safdie brothers should just kind of, like, take a step back in terms of, like, how they're using, like, synths yeah. and stuff like that and, like, how they use light and color and editing and shit like that. Like, Brandon Cronenberg is... He's got it. You're still fakers. Or Jonathan Glazer and Mika Levy can... Well, my, I'm not going to... Mika Levy can do whatever she wants. Uh, Andrea Risborough's penis is kind of... Was kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was a thing that I kind of expected to happen when he started to kind of break. You know what I mean? Or when she started to break, when he started to kind of get in or she was too much of herself or whatever. Um, I didn't think you would do it. And it works like so well and it's such like a like a kind of a breathtaking in a in a suspenseful like a a good sci-fi thriller way you know what i mean it's really it it's something you kind of half expected to see but didn't expect you would ever see it and then it's it's there and it's the way it's it's framed is it's really really good it was really really affecting but there's this really there's this backbone to the sexuality of of everything going on through this film that i don't think right narratively exactly does anything and, it, and i'm just sits there it sits there it's like the lighthouse it's yeah, there's all it's, this stuff that's happening and you're like that's awesome why yeah it just exists as and, a provocateur yeah you know and um i don't know that's 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 my frustration with this uh my frustration with this is is the fact that that it ends up just feeling cold and mean when there's so much potential there like it it opens so strongly it opens so strongly in the sense of um, you know, looking through Holly, uh, I think Christopher Abbott playing is, is fucking amazing. Yeah. One of the stronger performances of the year. Yep. Um, you, and and the he's he's your one besides Holly, is is your one inlet to a, a sympathetic lead, mm-hmm. um, despite his infidelity. Uh, he's somebody who is the only person you can relate to in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who's who's a major character, and he either denied that. Um, and I and I think that all of that's fine in in the world of modern nihilist cinema, but the way in which everything here is unveiled ends up being frustrating. There's a reason why, even though I hate Under the Skin, I'm okay with Under the Skin. Is it is always cool and cold mm-hmm. and distant, and even though there's an attempt to find human emotion. Or um, well, the movie even, kind of... even something like um, oh, kind of uh, Cosmati's first film, um, Beneath the Black Rainbow, or whatever. Oh, like, oh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. can't remember the exact title, yeah, yeah. but that has like this coolness and this coldness to the human perspective, and, and they're representing real nihilistic overtones. But there is that that permanent distance. There's that pure plastic layer over it mm-hmm. or you know even something um that has kind of more humanistic elements like annihilation you know garland's annihilation fantastic movie yeah but there there's still the sheen shine or whatever over <laughs> it that that is a disconnect from the human perspective but there's too much humanity in this movie that ends up being it ends up the experience ends up being more frustrating than fulfilling it would be it's an interesting um it would be an interesting essay to work on i wonder how rotten tomatoes would list our review right now mm. would be a, would be a fresh tomato be like one of those, fresh. yeah one of those one of those like borderline it would be one of those ones we could make a call on like we could say it's gonna be rotten or i mean i'd give it a fresh review but yeah uh, I, 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 there's there's 
it's it's an accomplishment of a talented writer director um it's it's an accomplishment of um uh, kareem hussan who i'm not familiar with his cinematography like the cinematography he did like hobo with a shotgun jesus christ mm-hmm. um you know like the, some of those moments that he he those, those moments are, are the, the art direction that every, everything is working on all cylinders well it doesn't ever shy away from everything and it does everything expertly so it no, yeah. nothing seems like a joke nothing seems like half-assed it's all really like so the visual effects the body horror all that stuff is done really really well there's a lack of vulnerability that's what bugs me with this mm. it's, it's too you also you don't want her to be a machine but strong like, front weak back yeah, yeah. To, to borrow Brian <laughs> Brown's kind of commentary it there's there's I want this movie to be more vulnerable, and mm-hmm. it's it's not. It's 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 this kind of, I don't want to say masculine, but it's this upfront cover, and it's not letting me, yeah, get close. It's just it, it's resisting my ability to get close to it. I think I really liked it though, so it's weird for me. I have the same feelings as the lighthouse. I loved watching it. I loved the experience of watching it, and then when I was it was over, I was just kind of like, okay, but why? Yeah, like why did you make that? And see, I hated it. Like I hated it, but I I respected right. everything it was doing. I respected, you know, the callbacks to to the butterfly. I that's even and the, see, like I mean, the most the most hokey moment of it is yeah. when um, Colin and Ira are dying, and the blood forms like the butterfly amongst each other. Like even well, the see, most hokey moments yeah. like that. Work. I thought the hokiest moment was the end when she was like, "It's a butterfly. I killed it and like mounted it when I was a little girl." And I almost like expected letters to come on the screen and say, "And I didn't say I felt guilty." Yeah, it's like, whoa, that's amazing. Well, no, the hokiest thing about this movie is just Jeffrey Jason Lee dialing it in throughout the entire thing. She's fucking awful. Here's (laughs) a weird thing, and I I think in ten years I hope that someone is is uh, like bored enough to kind of take this on it'll be us i think it's i think we're gonna look back and say that the the baseline scenes of blade runner 2049 were like the pivotal science fiction scenes of the last like 10 15 years because i think there's coming up i'm getting the impression that there's a baseline idea genre now where this movie has its own version of that you know what i mean where they're just like sitting down and kind of like you know are you okay i feel like i've seen this in a couple of other movies annihilation does something annihilation does something a little bit like that but it's 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 it happens like right you know at the same time 2049 and annihilation aren't so far removed but i feel like i feel like i saw something recently it might have even been this year where it was kind of like um Something stupid where like someone had to check their status. Maybe that mother movie. I am mother. It was. Um, where there's like everyone's constantly checking the Jesus. intellectual status of or the emotional status of somebody, you know, um, through something. That and fucking, I remember that fucking movie was so bad. Oh, so bad. But remember seeing 2049, the second baseline scene is a fucking miracle. I mean, Ryan Gosling literally earns something, some kind of celestial high five. For how fucking brilliantly he plays that gold scene. star, gold star, you could say gold star. That's basically a um, celestial high five. And I feel like that's where we. I feel like it's a thing that more directors are kind of, or more writers are kind of looking at and be like, oh yeah, the psychological torment of somebody who has to do something a lot of times, like you know, the same way in a science fiction setting is going to be like the new kind of foundation for a movie. The psychological breaks, which is not new, 
you know, Solaris did it. You know, there's, you know, and Stanley Kubrick did it in fucking, you know, 2001. It's not like a new thing. And Steven Soderbergh in Solaris. We are like the most anti-Steven Soderbergh podcast on the interweb. Um, but it's a thing. I think it's a thing to look out for. This movie was so obviously that section of this movie was so obviously indebted to that section of 2049 that I think it's probably a it's a it's a thing that's going to happen. It's a thing to keep an eye out. No, for. I agree. You know what's good about finding baseline, though, Tom? What? Finding your red queen, and we'll be right back with my number eleven. <laughs> During the break, Tom, you talked about coolness. Mm. And this week, my number 11, to a very young Mario. I believe I'm around 12 or 13 when I see this. Mm. I'm, I'm young. Like, this is the first, one of the first big black and white movies uh, of, like, with Psycho and, and the others that I really watch, and it's cool to me. Um, and it encapsulates coolness to me. Mm. It, it, it captures fun cinema techniques to me it, it's something that really caught my eye and it's mm-hmm. something that i ended up watching a lot of and i kind of got i got really into it i got really into the original novel i read which unfortunately wasn't that great um and it's eventual quasi remake mm-hmm. in 2004 which I, I i think really still stands the test of time um made by one of my favorite directors uh jonathan Demme. um but this movie, I don't know. This this is one of the the pivotal films for an intellectual sense. A pivotal film in the the sense that um, it sits with me because it, it it makes you me come closer to film in general. It mm-hmm. makes me come closer to performances. It makes me come closer to directorial choices. It makes me come closer to just you know story beats. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those kind of what I what I consider elementary films. It's it's one of those films I I would show to a younger person who's looking to really get close to film. And I think it's one of the purest examples of an early film, um, like much like we talked about years ago with 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 uh, Citizen Kane. Like this is close to my Citizen Kane, not nearly has, has sound of a film, but mm. I think it's 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 an easy film, a, a film you get close to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, and a film that, that speaks to all its hallmarks. And that movie is the 1962 John Frankenheimer Manchurian Candidate. If we may proceed with the demonstration. Raymond. Who is that? Little fellow sitting next to the captain. That's Bobby Limbeck. Our mascot, I guess you'd call him. Doesn't look old enough to be in your army. I guess he isn't, but there he is, ma'am. Captain Marco, you'll be good enough to lend Raymond your pistol, please. Yes, ma'am. Thanks, Ben. Sure, kid. Shoot Bobby Raymond through the forehead. Yes, ma'am.
The original trailers for this movie have no words in it. It's just... Screaming? No, it's just... Uh, so that's the clip. So uh, there's no... They don't say anything. It's just music and then words on the screen saying, like, if you miss the first five minutes, you won't know what happens. And make sure you go and blah, blah, blah. That's so. I used a clip instead. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> great clip. Uh, I don't know how to... Don't, um, it's that, uh, it's Al's, Al's nightmare. When, yeah, that's, um, that's what I assumed. Yeah. Um, it's good. Oh, it's good screaming. John Frankenheimer inhabits this trio of directors for me. Uh, uh, who, who I kind of came into being around the same time, who encapsulate the feeling, I don't know, there's a visceral, uh, visceralness to them. Yep. Uh, it's John Frankenheimer, Sidney Lumet, and William Friedkin. Um, we call him Billy because we're friends, but... Yeah. Uh, I... I and it's kind of funny because because I, I look at this for the John uh, William Friedkin's you know French Connection has this real rawness to it, sure. this real viscerality to it. John Frankenheimer directed sequel, um, Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, and the previously talked about Twelve Angry Men, and um, you know the Manchurian Candidate. Like they all capture the same sort of place, and and to a lesser degree. Um, because he becomes more problematic, as we talked about Sam Peckinpah, kind of encapsulate this 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 real visceralness to it. But I, I feel as though the thing that made me love above all of those Manchurian Candidate the most is Frankenheimer always had this real appreciation for the theatric. Uh, the Manchurian Candidate is a film during the Korean War. A group of you know American army soldiers are captured. Um, including Raymond Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, and Bennett Marco, played by uh, Frank Sinatra. L- Raymond Shaw is the son of uh, Eleanor Islin, played immaculately by Angela Lansbury. Uh, Angela Lansbury still standing the test of time, being one of my like probably top five actresses of all time. Hmm. Um, she's that character is basically redone by my favorite actress, Meryl Streep. I have, I know, I understand you. I'm you so dislike. fucking had it with this Meryl Streep fucking bullshit, man. Yeah, but you've known forever that I love Meryl Streep. But here's the thing. But like Meryl Streep's terrible. But also when Meryl Streep's Meryl, like Meryl Streep hits her highs. I think she's only hit one high ever in her whole life, and we've talked about it already on this podcast. It is adaptation. Oh, right. I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, Sophie's Choice and and uh, Iron Silkwood and Silkwood and um, is she Five Easy Pieces? No, who's in Five Easy Pieces? That's not Sissy Spacek, is it? I do like Five Easy Pieces. I should know who that is. Doesn't matter. Um, younger Meryl Streep, fine. Uh, I like then, I like Meryl Streep through like two thousand. Deer Hunter, like Deer Hunter, Meryl Streep. Kramer versus Kramer, Meryl Streep. I like. Meh. I like. I like all. The, I like young Meryl Streep. I like. I like Meryl Streep. I like. I Kramer versus Kramer. I think is fine. I think, maybe I think there's a. Maybe that's the line. Most stuff pre Devil Wears Prada. No. I. I basically like Devil Wears Prada and pre because I like her in Devil Wears Prada. But like all that pre Meryl Streep, I. I, enjoy I actually don't degree. like her in Devil Wears Prada. I mean, Death Becomes Her is. I love her in Death Becomes. Death Becomes Her, her is okay. But that seems so anti herself. We are not talking about Manchurian Candidate in 1962 right now. No, it's fine. So, we'll you, get it. We can get into the because we'll talk about the the remake. 
um, through this. But, uh, you know, played immaculately by Angela Lansbury, who, who was probably one of the first actresses I really started following. Hmm. Um, I loved her, you know, in Beauty and the Beast, obviously. And then uh, the PBS production of Sweeney Todd was one of the things I was like, <gasps> Mrs. Potts. Mm-hmm. And this is not Mrs. Potts. What are you um, doing, Mrs. Potts? <laughs> Oh no! This is so un Mrs. Potts like. Uh, so so Shaw and um, Bennett Marco come back, and and Shaw's awarded the Medal of Honor, and he's you know held to the highest esteem, and you know Eleanor's husband John Eastland is is rising up the ranks. He's become a vice president, and, and like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, and it turns out in in all of this this fracas. Uh, that, you know, the, the, this army troop's been conditioned by communists in China, Korea, and, and Moscow to kind of have believed a certain thing, been conditioned to say that Shaw's a hero, to mm-hmm. put Shaw close, because Shaw's become a sleeper agent who is going to, you know, instill the kind of regime that the communists want in, in John Eastling, um... And at the same time, Eleanor, who becomes his American handler, mm-hmm. uh, is going to work against that to kind of take him on to his own to you know turn the tide against those Heinz fifty seven communists. <laughs> uh, and and all during this time, you know, Bennett Marco is is trying to figure out the kind of uh, conspiracy behind this because he's having nightmares. And Melvin, you know, one of the other. Um, Members of that troop is having nightmares about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually leading to this climactic scene in the uh, president, the the, the party convention. nomination convention. Wasn't that um, so like weird to watch, especially like this year? Like yeah. this is what conventions looked like up until to that. Like up until this year, this was a standard issue convention. That's probably gonna be what it's gonna look like in twenty twenty four again. Uh, no. This movie captures me from its early moments. That kind of like track, not tracking shot, but that kind of like floating camera mm-hmm. between like talking about hydrangeas and the actual discussion and like the hydrangea conversation being really weird. Like, why are they talking about hydrangeas as simple plants? Yeah. And then, you know, floating around to a North Korean, Korean, you know, which you could assume is a neuroscientist talking about conditioning the people and, and the really visceral violence of strangling a man to death. Not Bennett Marco because he's needed for the accommodation and shooting a man in the head. And every moment in this just bleeds interest. Mm. Bleeds like this real understanding that it's a movie. And mm. when I watched this as a kid, the thing I appreciated about it was it I was watching this going like, this appreciates that it's doing something that another media can't. And, you know, other films of the time are doing this, but this was like my in-gate to that. That floating camera cutting between garden party and doctor's, uh, you know, media room. Mm-hmm. Um, that twist of... Eleanor being the handler, you know, that the, the the floating kind of dream sequences in and out. These were things that I was watching going like, I get now that a film can do this. And I had seen like, you know, I'd, I'd watched 
television and whatnot do this before, but I like this was this was an early film really doing this and really doing this proficiently and soundly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt a real raw emotional connection to it, mm-hmm. um, in much the same way that I feel a real raw emotional connection to things like Straw Dogs, to things like Twelve Angry Men, because there's this real. Not only intimacy, but perspective. Mm-hmm. Because this film gets you close to Bennett and it gets you extremely close to Raymond. A Lawrence Harvey performance. Uh, Lawrence Harvey is somebody who I felt like had so much potential and died so young from alcohol and drugs. Uh-huh. Yay, drinking. <laughs> I don't smoke, so yay. Hopefully stomach cancer gets me in like 70. Yeah, yeah. that's the goal anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um... One of the people on Biden's transition team, not Rahm Emanuel, his brother, wants to die at 75. Uh, okay. Like I said, I'm going to start throwing Biden in the bus now. Um. <laughs> you know what I talk to you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but there's this real earnestness to it that I felt close to because of the fact that but because of the fact that it was a film and knew it was a film mm-hmm. and knew that it was using those moments to connect you and get you close to it. And at the same time, it really captured the spirit. And I was always somebody who was intimately into American history. And we talked about this last week, um, you know, with maybe some of my divisive opinions, if people actually listen to this podcast about <laughs> world war two and this 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 intimately kind of like created this closer feeling that i had to american politics and it, you know it's, it's a really sort of obtuse film about politics like it presents it in the most simplistic of ways but it it, it gets me closer it gets me it, it it does bring me into that world it brings me into the entire theatrics of that game um and it really shapes kind of my my scope and view of how politics are i I think it's it's fun to watch a a early 1960s movies so call out the ridiculousness it you know so soon after the blacklist of mccarthyism Mm -hmm. you know with like we have to have a definitive number of how many communists they are and you know there are 57 you know just calling that out um calling out the theatricality calling out the sameness of both sides the the villainy and well, both, not villainy i don't not necessarily that but but calling out the same trajectory that both sides use to play against one i and i speak i speak serious uh, purely in terms of like Eleanor's like use of the system created by somebody else to like take that back on top of one another. I suppose so. Um but ultimately what what gets me close to this film is just like this real early and and I talked about this long ago with Withering Heights, this real early appreciation of the perfect performance. And Angela Lansbury to me stands the test of time as like the perfect performance. Mm. Um, she is 
somebody who I still look at. You know, she's the oldest surviving nominee now hmm. in history of the Oscars. Nominated mm-hmm. in the 17th Oscars for Gaslight. Oh, wow. You know. Did she ever, she ever did she win an Oscar? I don't think she's ever won. Um, yeah, it's never, a year. But, yeah, it's a year Igmar Bergman wins for Gaslight. Great film, by the way. Mm. Bad, bad year for a winner. Double Indemnity loses to Going My Way. No, yeah, it's tough. But the Oscars have always been stupid. Yeah, Going My Way stinks. Fuck that movie. Bing Cosby was not good. No, he wasn't. He made a good song. Congratulations, bro. Um, but she. Which this one? Is, White Christmas. What? It's a. It's a class. It has a nice chord progression. When was the last time you saw that movie? I've never seen it. I like the song. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I'm talking about the song. Um, it's an impeccable performance. Like, I, I love. Um, Lawrence Harvey's performances. I still think it's strong, but I, every time I have not watched a performance until this day that I can't see any fatal flaw with. Mm. And and I think you know beyond the camera tricks that I've mentioned, beyond the closeness that this film brings me to what would be kind of my modern take on on politics, beyond like whatever skewed view I might have on the intent of um, Frankenheimer or Condon. Angela Lansbury is the thing. Mm. Like, I look at this as the cornerstone, the keystone of acting. Mm. It's just the impeccable performance. Just let it sit. It's Mario dropping his mic. I mean, I've, I've loved Angela Lansbury forever. Yeah, it's funny. I don't... I've watched Murder, She Wrote, and I was like, I like her. Yeah, I... I, I... I've never been able to kind of process the Angela Lansbury feelings in this about this role because you're not like the first person to say something like that. You know what I mean? What? Which I mean, she this... gets nominated for this, right? But it's not even that she gets nominated. It's one of those things. It's become like I think a kind of keystone acting performance in a lot of ways. Where if you read about the Manchurian Candidate, it's like starts with Angela Lansbury and then kind of ends with. Frank Sinatra doing karate. You know what I mean? Like, there's your... There's your... <laughs> yeah, karate. A 90-degree, really bad shop at that guy uh, that kind of looks like an actor who I can't remember. Uh, the main villain in the sequel to Under Siege. Oh, Under yeah. Siege 2 Dark Territory. It's basically his, his dad. His name is Henry Silva. Yeah, what is... I don't think he is Korean. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but he does look like the father of... What was that guy's name? Oh, boy. We're getting back into terrible podcast standpoints. This is good podcasting. Uh, when you look up Steven Seagal movies in the middle of a podcast, that's always good podcasting. Everett McGill. Oh, yeah. Everett McGill. He lo- a little bit, yeah. yeah. I think they look exactly alike. Um, I think she's I think she's fine. I just, I'm, not, I'm not close enough to this movie. I think it's... But I thought oh, it was... he was a preacher in Silver Bullet. I just connected those oh, dots. Oh, yeah. I love Silver oh, Bullet. I love Silver Bullet. It was almost on the list. We talked about that before. Yeah. Um, Stephen King, King cast. Talk about Silver go Bullet. Our, go listen to our Stephen King episodes where we do talk about Silver Bullet. Um, Agree? Yeah. No, I don't It's on my list of movies. Um, it's funny. I've seen this movie a couple of times because it's just one of those movies that you have to see. And then when the new the Demi movie came out... You know, I watched it, 
and I think it's weirdly perfect. I, you know, you don't think of Frankenheimer as a influence for anybody, but he clearly was an influence on Demi. Um, does Demi do a couple of things? Do are Demi's close up seemingly more meaningful? Do they carry more narrative and emotional weight than Frankenheimer's? I think they do. Do you think? Do you think Frankenheimer's an influence on Demi? I think he's got to be. I think Frankenheimer's an influence on Friedkin, who ends up being an influence on Demi. I don't know, but Friedkin never did any... There's Demi shots in this movie. There's Demi composition in this movie. There's no Demi shots in anything Friedkin's done. Oh, no, like, Demi was... literally took the... we yeah. The clip we started with is no, right, Frank right. Sinatra's... <laughs> Just great. Look at these. 52... Can't be 52 queens. It can't be. Because there's a whole bunch of queens sitting on the table in front of him. He just laid them out. There's at least 10 queens sitting on 52 queens. And you know what we're going to do? And there's all that close-up of, 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 um, of uh, Harvey. Harvey just right there. You know what I mean? That like bug-eyed and it's just close right on his face. He's looking right into the camera. And he does it a, he does it a couple of times with a couple of different things. Um, I wouldn't have thought of it. It makes perfect sense. They're doing it's the, the, those shots are meant to do the same thing. They're meant to kind of ingratiate you into that person. Um, I was I'm I, I'm interested in the idea that you started with you started with film and got to politics. When after last week's episode, I would have assumed you would were going to go right to politics. That this would be some kind of formative bullshit like template for like this is what politics is. It's all this type of these type of people where they're all Angela Lansbury's and they're all grasping at straws and they're all, you know, losing all they're, they're losing all the gains in Congress and still demanding power. They're like embarrassing themselves in the national media and are still going to demand like to be the leader of the Senate. If they, you know, if the Democrats are lucky enough to have control of it, it's all, and I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi and Charles and Charles Schumer. Oh, Um, okay. They're, it's all an act. Like, the whole thing's an act. You know, Iceland's whole Abraham Lincoln horseshit nonsense is all an act. Like, there's still, you know, um, Republicans in a certain sense of the words are, like, Lincoln Republicans and that they, they think they're standing up for, like, freedom and for the oppressed people, but in reality they're just, like, all out for themselves. I think my only problem with this movie is is it's like depiction of the politics because I think this movie really shines when it lets um, Lawrence Harvey be broken. Like that's where the movie kind of takes on this different kind of uh, like brutal, like a, like a, like a brutalism. Like it's really, he's really ruined as a person. Um, And you can see why he's ruined as a person. You get, you know, very early in the movie, you get to see why he's ruined as as a person. Um, And all the Frank Sinatra-ing, like, that happens inside of this movie. And even, like, having Janet Leigh just, like, show up and be like, yeah, I'll I'll break off my engagement for you. Oh, no. Like, it doesn't change the fact that, like, Harvey is, is, or Shaw is just fucked up. Yeah. and, And when he's at his most fucked up is when this movie fucking takes off so there's a couple of times when this movie just goes it just fucking shoots up and then it just kind of levels off again and then it shoots up and then it levels off again so like when he's saying he's unlovable it's just stupid script line like i'm unlovable like all this other stuff but he sells it 
with such like it's not he's not really talking about being unlovable. He's just talking about being fucking destroyed. Um, I agree. I, it's interesting because I I compare this to a movie we'll talk about. Oh, not too much longer from now. But I always look at Lawrence Harvey as a later version of Joseph Cotton in his ability to kind of just sell the role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think this movie works without Lawrence Harvey. Like, as great as I think Angela Lansbury is, I think Lawrence Harvey carries, like, an emotional core. I think Angela Lansbury more represents kind of this idealized villain that you hadn't seen since Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Um, and Even though Lawrence Harvey is not doing anything to his English accent. <laughs> no, who cares? Never. Um but, you know, you see the torture in this scene when he kills, the, the, the torment in his face when he kills Jocelyn and, and Thomas Jordan. And that's a great shot, too. Like, I don't know if that shot had been done before of shooting somebody through a milk carton. Mm. You know, that's just a... Well, there's a, that's a, the Peckinpah stuff is in, like, the fact that this is a very violent movie. Like, intensely yeah. violent. But I think one of the beautiful things about this film is that, like, the two, I think, most affecting shots for me are both of Harvey's back. So it's when Harvey is calling Bennett like from that hotel room across the street from the convention. Mm-hmm. Like after he's killed Jocelyn and her dad. You know, and you don't see him. He's just looking out the window. You don't see his face. It's just his back. And then right after uh, Shaw kills his, his mother in, in Iceland um, when he puts on his Medal of Honor. You know what I mean? And you just see you just see his back. You just see him do it. You don't. I'm not 100 percent sure what he's doing. You assume he's going to kill himself, but you know, of course, he turns around uh, for it. Um, but those shots of his back are really affecting because, like, it's it communicates that kind of unknowable pain. Yeah. Which, like, you can see all the stuff, and they can tell you all the things, and Angela Lansbury can explain all the machination, like the political machinations of what she's trying to do. But there's like real, it communicates a real kind of interior death, which the viewer will never really understand, which Marco will never really understand, um, which nobody can really understand, which is kind of covered up a little bit by the narrative flow of the movie, but is real. Which I think is is, is a good point you just brought up. And and you say that you don't connect to the Angela Lansbury stuff. and, And I can see that in the sense that like... As much as I love this film, a lot of like Condon's writing, like the the original novels, abysmal, um, <laughs> and this film's I think general writing is, is isn't strong, is the fact that so much is is presented to you on a platter, like mm. so much of of what you're supposed to emotionally feel, and so much of what you're supposed to where you're supposed to get to narratively is told to you. And there's a reason why I think the scenes with Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee are, are failures is because Frank Sinatra and Janet Lee aren't the performers that could elevate this material. And whereas Harvey is, is that... you not you don't think Frank Sinatra just kind of staring weirdly off camera <laughs> for like whole, like ten seconds at a time before he delivers lines is is good acting? And, and Janet Lee look legitimately looking confused. <laughs> but Lawrence Harvey's, you know, ability to emote without words and then Angela Lansbury's ability to deliver some sort of volume behind her exposition bombs. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. she's an exposition bomb. Sure. This. Like, this film doesn't... The reason why I, I see this performance as so incredible 
is the fact that her character is so in in a way hokey ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we understand her as hokey now. I think yeah. probably in sixty two, she was like it was something else, like but, a woman. It was like a Lady Macbeth like situation. Exactly, but but there's there's an element of bravado to everything she's delivering, and not just bravado, but an element of convincing selling of why she's saying these things. Well, not only that, but she legitimately owns her husband. Yeah. She legitimately owns, to the point where you almost could say she legitimately owns America for certain chunks of this movie. Her machinations, her personal feelings and desires are going to move the country in a specific direction. And she just happens to have an idiot, like, in the Senate. I mean, I mean... None of the senators in this movie come off really well, but which is to say, I don't know if any senators ever are going to come off well ever again in anything. Um, oh, Chris Murphy is doing a good job, and Blumenthal is still around, so they're they're fine. Well, Blumenthal is just he's a he's a good just guy. drowning in money. Uh, he's he's all right. He's fine. Don't forget, he's the second richest senator. I can't wait for Margaret Stryker to be like, "I'll have that job," and <laughs> everyone to just laugh at her. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, she sells the fact that she legitimately owns the United States. And it's ridiculous in a lot of ways, um, but also 100% not ridiculous. She makes it, Angela Lansbury makes it not ridiculous. There's no way that this woman wouldn't be, if she was in this specific uh, position, wouldn't be doing the things that she would be doing. You know what I mean? She's She owns all that stuff. And that's what has always just impressed me and like continues to like... Oh, it's totally about, impressive. About, no, just about, um, just about Angela Lansbury in general. Uh, God, I'm looking right now for the character she played, um, Mrs. Lowell, right? In what? Love, love it, Mrs. Love it, in Sweeney Todd. Like, mm-hmm. like that character's a fucking exposition machine, and her, um, character in. Murder, she wrote, which I don't remember, but I watched a bunch of episodes as a kid. She's just always, and even like going back to like Gaslight, she has this like these like moments of exposition dumps. Mm. And Angela Lansbury just makes you go, like, okay, yeah, I accept that. Yeah, she's very convincing. Um, sometimes when those, you know, when <laughs> you can make those things work, um, oh, it, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, I love. I don't. Know. I, I don't uh, this is my first time. Like I kind of delved into my love of Angela Lansbury and Beauty and the Beast, but like this is my ability to be like oh, I fucking love Angela Lansbury. Hmm. Um, I I don't think she ever got the meaty role she deserved, and that's why like Meryl Streep is kind of on the top. Uh, and also because it's easy, I guess, with Meryl Streep. I don't think Meryl Streep is the best actress. I think Angela Lansbury's. Like, let's do let's do the let's do the street thing. We're going to talk about Meryl Streep ever again? I'm just saying, uh, uh, no. I mean, not unless she... Well, we'll talk about her probably in... Listen, We'll not... talk about her in probably in, like, a month when we review that new Soderbergh If movie. I have to fucking quit the Oscars forever because she, for some reason, gets nominated for that goddamn motherfucking prom movie... Well, she might get nominated for the Soderbergh movie, too, though. Which is what? The um, HBO Max movie. Which is... What is that? I, don't know. I, I have too. it. I have it on a post-it note in my pocket. We'll talk about it after the <laughs> podcast is over. Um, um, she shouldn't get nominated for anything. She fucking stinks. Uh, she's telegraphs every. Well, what's move your she's... What's your feeling on the remake of 
Manchurian Candidate. So I like the remake of Manchurian Candidate. I actually like uh, it a little like, bit. Like, I enjoy it a little bit more than this movie. I enjoy this... it a little more as well. Because I think, like, Lawrence Harvey's amazing. Leah Schreiber upstate, updates that role. But Fine. Denzel Washington just fucking basically curb stomps for 17 hours Frank Sinatra in the fucking oh, yeah. face. Shifting the perspective of the... I think it's smarter than the than the Frankenheimer movie because I think the Frankenheimer movie, I think to your point, was a little more primitive. It seems a little more primitive in its, execu- in its perfect execution of a lot of, of interesting scenes. Like technical. It's, it's technically impressive, but primitively but no, storytelling. And, and, and I don't mean film. primitive in like a bad way. I mean primitive in like a, in that Sam Peckinpah way where it's really, it's not content to just There's make... There's 42 years separating two versions. It's digging at it. It's digging yeah. at something. And it doesn't, it might not always get there and it's pretty ham-fisted in the Sinatra way that it kind of... But look know, at, look res- at the final scene where... Rounds us out. Shaw kills Isling and his mother. You know, it's kind of like boom, boom. Versus like Demi's showing of like, um, is it still he's, he's is Denzel Washington's character still Marco? Yeah, I think so. Um, where he's like looking through the scope and Shaw's dancing with his mother. Like mm-hmm. that's a great fucking scene. I think it's you know and Shaw's looking up at him, well, like basically begging with his eyes to be killed. So the genius of the Demi film is that it understands the legacy of. It is able to marry the legacy of the film with the reality of what modern politics has become, and so it's not it's it's not content to just kind of sit on the idea that like oh a woman is pulling all these strings yeah a woman's pulling the fucking strings like by two thousand four we all know who's pulling all the strings and like maybe it's Hillary Clinton she's you know, not really I don't think she's presented to look like a Hillary Clinton type but. She's it's not, de- it's ve- yeah. apparently online. It's very debate like there's really? hot debates on whether or not it's supposed to be Hillary Clinton or not. Or but de- but it doesn't even matter. I took it as like a it's a it, what it matters conservative is that in, in 2004 we're not we're not surprised to find a woman in the role of uh you know uh, in that role you know what John I mean? we're Voight not playing the liberal voice in that movie. Oh, John Voight. Let's hear from Let's let's add that. We'll add that to the list of people we're never going to talk about again. Um. So he's able to. The movie comes with a an edge of disappointment to it, like a real, like cynic or a real. So there's a lot of cynicism involved in like the original Manchurian Candidate. There's like a super kind of dejection in the newer Manchurian Candidate, where like even with all of the things we know, we're still never gonna fix this. Yeah. Like it's just like this forever. And so what you're talking about, like, there's, like, a sadness to it, uh, which is not present in the Frankenheimer Manchurian Candidate. That sadness belongs just to Shaw, but it's not to everybody else. Not, everybody else doesn't have the, the scope of knowledge that he has, and the people that do are not good enough actors to sell what that means. In the 2004 version, they're all good enough. And uh, Meryl Streep is obviously an excellent actress. I'm just sick of her shit. Well, the thing I but love in the all... 2004 version, too, is when Dean Stockwell, as a part of the Manchurian... Love, I mean, that's the thing. You add some Dean Stockwell but into he's this. He's also sitting there going like, win. oh, that's a small setback for us. Yeah. It comes off as like a... Uh, yeah. 
Like, we'll, we'll bounce back. Because there's always another one. Yeah. So that's the thing. In this movie, it's just, this is the one. They have one chance at this, and if we don't get it, with everything goes back to normal. You know what I mean? And that's kind of, maybe one of the, the reasons... Dean Stockwell goes like, we have 2016. Right. Oh, maybe that's in, to the point where, to take it to modern times, like, I think a lot of people are writing about, and a lot of people are reacting to Joe Biden getting elected, like, fixed it. And then I think a lot of us, me included, are just like, we didn't fix anything. Like, we did a one good thing. And I, tra- I tried to make that comment, and you yelled at me earlier. I'm allowed to say it. You can't say it. <laughs> no, 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 because no, you were just trashing Biden. No, I was trashing the, the, the one choice on his COVID team. Which one? Oh, um, Rahm Emanuel's brother? Yeah. No. I don't... Let's not go do like you know what's so funny is that like now also like we're let's go talking between the two of us like we get into the minutia of like this was not a good pick because of blah 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 blah. and then like realize like oh right most people don't give a shit about that and not even that like it's so funny to see like a picture on like the New York Times um, of all the people that Biden has put in place like at the base level of his administration not even like secretaries of anything like just the people that are going to do the work and you're just kind of like oh i didn't even know that was a position yeah because we have this motherfucker now who's just like oh there's no titles it's just jared and ivanka and that guy over there in 20,000 how is rudy giuliani how are we not reporting this as extortion he clearly is extorting the president you know what I mean? And so his personal lawyer. Yes, all the presidents have personal lawyers that they pay $20,000 a day to not talk about how fucked up everything is in, you know, Donald Trump's administration. But that's the whole point of this movie, the, two, the 2020, uh, 2004 version of the movie, is that, like, you can do all this stuff, but it doesn't matter. Everything fucking sucks. You yeah. know what I mean? The lizard people are know who's – they put Joe Biden in there. They've got a reason um, – we're not actually talking about real lizard people. <laughs> Maybe we are. Maybe that's a Manchurian candidate, too. <laughs> Andrew, is that you? And the mud flood comes. And... <laughs> um, uh, no, my name is David. Yeah. David Ike. Pleased to meet you. Oh, he's the lizard people guy. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think that's where I, it was. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. It was um, chilling. I don't mean even mean the twenty yep. the two thousand four. I don't want to keep one twenty twenty four the two thousand four. Um, it was chilling and but also and and super entertaining. Even the shitty stuff um, was like kind of cool. Like I kept thinking like, wow, Frank Sinatra stinks. He does. And then was just like, but it's awesome. This is the uh, this is the last film of Mario politics. This one. Not even your nine. That's not a political thing. That's just a. That's just a. Sadness thing. No, no, nine's not political. I don't mean political, like politics, politics, but just kind of like, you know. Well, that has that kind of detached. There's gonna be, there's gonna be political, social. Yeah, 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 social aspect of it. That's a better way to say. This is the last time we talk politics for for Mario. That's uh, I've never talked about politics. So this is the last time we'll talk politics on this show. No, No, I mean we'll do the new movies will be political. Oh yeah, for sure. A lot of politics there. Well, if you missed the politics movies, uh, I guess it's a good time to tune out. No, when we when we stop doing when we stop doing this podcast for whatever reason, uh, we'll do a politics megapod. 
we'll just we could, we could just create a politics podcast too. That would be terrible. It would be a terrible idea. It's just us shaking our head and being angry. Just quiet. Could we have like a rational So that's the thing about this podcast is that we have these we have these like two hour com- like conversations about movies and we're generally pretty rational about it. We get a little worked up, but most of the time we're pretty rational about it. I think if we had a politics conversation, we'd be rational for like ten minutes and then you would get super fucking pissed and dark, and I would get super exercised and just start screaming about something, and then we'd both crash. I haven't, and then I we'd be like, oh, let's go eat some food." I haven't got that dark lately. I've stopped being dark. I don't know if you noticed that. Maybe, maybe because I'm all because I'm dark. <laughs> just balancing it out. Yeah. All right. Anything else? <sighs> I like it. Was a, it was an enjoyable experience. I was no. glad I, I got a chance to kind of go back to a managerial candidate well sometimes you have to be dark sometimes you have to be light sometimes you have to be in the middle sometimes That's you have it. to be 500 years ago sometimes in the present sometimes in the future and sometimes neither of those things because we'll sometimes be right- it's all a fiction Mario yep. and we'll be right back with Tom's number 11 Welcome back. So as Mario said, my number 11 is a movie that we've already talked about on this podcast. What number was it again? 49. 49. So that's not, that's not you know, too far away. It's not like What's it's interesting about this, too, is you mentioned during the podcast, we'll talk about it in a long time, at my number 11, and yet you keep editing out the fact that my number Did one... Did I say that? <laughs> what did you do that for? <laughs> You keep editing out the fact Stop that my number that. one is. No, I'm going to do the reverse. <laughs> Although someone, I mean, there's definitely someone on the internet who's like really good at reverse, like listening to stuff in reverse because they're just spend too much time on the internet. And they're like, I know what that is. Come on, buddy. Or just context clues. That's but yeah, it was 49, and you mentioned this being your number 11. Which is weird. I must have been in like a fugue state, and I just I don't remember having the conversation. But I'm curious to know. Should I? I guess I should. If, if people already know what's was your forty nine, then they definitely know what this is. This is uh, Darren Aronofsky's third feature film, his follow up to Requiem for a Dream, which we did at number thirteen, no fourteen, uh, The Fountain. A special tree sprouts there. They say, whoever drinks of its sap will live forever. Death is a disease. It's like any other. And there's a cure. And I will find it. My conquistador. Always conquering. You do. And you will. 
there's no third one. I feel like there should be three. It's not a Hans Zimmer score. So, Mario, you said you just listened to this episode 49. What was... What did we talk about then? Because it was for your movie. So where, which, what was the, the nature of the conversation, so limited as it might have the been? The nature of the conversation at that time, and this is September 17th, 2019, That's not a thing that ever happened. There's no such thing as September 2019. <laughs> um, I talked about this as cinema therapy mm. in the sense of uh, I used this to in comparison to uh, The Savages and um, Diving on the Butterfly because... I, you know, would a year later see those two films and, you know, have this real abstract fear of death. I I talked all throughout uh, this episode about my generalized anxiety at the time and mm-hmm. how I would see them in the abstract. And The Fountain kind of gave me this new perspective of life has cycle, life has whatever, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Different from that now. Uh, but we talked mostly about that, just mostly about this this sense of this film as... Has, therapy in uh the grand scope of of life and death we talked mm. a lot about the the philosophy mm. behind like the zababa we had a lot of uh-huh. nebula wrapped in a dying star talk yeah that's good um but but basically the, this film has therapy in it, and this film from its uh metaphysical and philosophical standpoint what did i say nothing you talked about it from that point of view um and you said you had a lot of thoughts on this film and a lot of emotions of this film and I asked you necessarily like how did you feel about this film and you said you know pres- feeling like the I first know, I think it's so funny you like telling me what I thought because I don't remember but I find you, you, basically, you basically said like I felt so many things that I don't know exactly how yeah. I feel yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. good 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 so you're like that's not true whatsoever yeah I, know. I was lying <laughs> Um, I definitely wasn't lying, but it, it's definitely true. It's it's one of those things that's true and not true. I watch this movie. You know how much often I've watched this movie? I found out on my most recent watching that my DVD doesn't work anymore. Like in the middle of the DV, in the middle of the movie, it just kind of starts to break apart, and then right about the time that um, Izzy dies, the movie just kind of stops. Spoiler alert. <laughs> If you haven't seen The Fountain Met, then you are one of 300 million people in America that have not seen The Fountain. Um, the, right as Izzy does, the DVD kind of just cuts out. And I actually had to pay to rent it because I was like, I am watching the fucking end of this movie oh, that's right now. You could, I would have brought you my Blu-ray. No, I was. This was at like twelve o'clock at night, so I was like, "Fuck it." I would have brought. You. Well, it depends on the day. I would have brought you my Blu-ray. It was like Monday. Probably was drunk. <laughs> uh, um, no, but I was happy. To, you know, what's funny was I was happy to do it, and I don't have a Blu-ray player, so it wouldn't have mattered. I was happy to do it because my I have like a full-screen edition, and then you know it's old. It's like from the original DVD release, and uh, full-screen. In 2020 means something different than full screen in 2007. So full screen is not a square anymore. Full screen is long. Um, So I was happy to like watch a digital, you know, almost like a restored version of it instead of like my shitty DVD copy, which actually like, I don't know, like a third of the way through actually looks like a film print. Because it's so like the DVD is kind of so degraded that it just looks so rough. Well, it's interesting. I was I was watching this 
today. I watched this twice this week, but watched it today in 1080 again. Yeah. Like I watched a digital copy of it earlier, and I watched it in 1080, and I was like, "This looks gross." And I was like, "This was like the movie that made me realize, like, oh, maybe our eyesight goes beyond 1080." Mm. Um, fucking technology, man. I actually often don't like 1080 or like that traditional HD shit. Like really? my my parents have like a huge HD TV. And sometimes I'll watch like NCIS and HDTV, and you're just like, "This is terrible." Who wants to look at Mark Harmon in that much detail? Well, who wants to look at Mark Harmon anyway? But it's just, it's like, yeah, the amount of detail that you have is just makes it look like real, like camcorder footage almost. And you're just like, "This is no good. I don't want to watch this." Um, doesn't matter. You're not wrong. I still kind of don't know how I feel. But because it's the emotions are so visceral that they are, uh, they resist definition. I will say though, high from, definition, from high definition. Yeah, Ugh. I'm gonna have to title this high definition. No, I'm not gonna. Um, I don't know if I got into when I saw it. I saw it alone. I saw it at the Orange Showcase Cinemas. I think alone, meaning that I don't think there was anyone else in the theater. I did that, a lot was, of not watching. Was... That was the theater that would be Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's there Labyrinth, will be blood. All, like the art house theater, the biggest that, <laughs> city of God. So yeah. yeah, there's there's a couple of major theaters. because of the fucking Milford. Loved it. Loved theater. it. Um, so I got to see it big, and I just sat there and had my fucking head blown off. I mean, I saw I saw Pie on DVD. I saw Requiem for a Dream at York Square. And then I saw the fountain on this huge, massive screen with Dolby Digital surround and just like sitting in the middle of the theater, just in darkness alone, not paying attention to anything and just kind of letting this fucking shit wash over me. Yeah, Arnofsky was the, this was the first film of Arnofsky's I saw in theaters in a big multiplex. Which is hilarious because nobody saw this fucking movie. I mean, and I think that's the Aronofsky thing now. I mean, we saw Mother with... Some more people, and uh, but Black no, Swan got an audience. Some people saw Black Swan, yeah. Yeah, it's, Noah made I think a hundred million dollars. I did not see that one in theaters. You didn't see Noah, I saw it on video, I didn't see it in theater. I mean, there's like a million different ways that we can start this conversation, there's a million different directions that we can go. We can talk about like it from an Aronofsky standpoint and like how the first two films don't signal anything let's talk about it from a you standpoint and this, like the, that's where we need to start so there's a the me standpoint mario is that i'm pretty sure I, i'm pretty sure this is for me hands down kind of unequivocally and this is taking into consideration that i have several movies on my list that people have said are like include the greatest um endings of all time you know what I mean? Got some 400 blows on my list. I got... What else is on my list that people have said that about? I don't know. I can't even really think about what's on my list now. Um, yeah, just a couple of It doesn't matter. I'm pretty sure this is the best ending in the history of cinema. Overall ending or like third act? Just like the ending. When like... On the snow field. From the Tree of Life... To, or no, from, from when, the from when the future Tom 
shows up Indian style there at the top of that temple. <clears throat> First father. To the end. No. I understand that I'm wrong, but it also, I feel like I'm right. I didn't say you're wrong. No, but I, you know what I mean? Like, in terms of, like, film. I, I get it. You know, I understand what you're doing. I understand that, like, this is like a, a weirdo Darren Aronofsky, like, middle period thing where he's kind of, you know, it's a it's a movie that started out as one thing and then ended up becoming this thing. Um, it had this huge budget. It had Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett and it had all this stuff. Um it was going to be this thing that's like, this is one of the only speaking of how attached I am to this movie. It's the only one of the only kind of like special features features that I've watched, like a making of thing. I really don't like those, like the making of a movie, but I've watched this one like a whole bunch of times and you see what they were trying to do in like these jungles. They were making these huge fucking sets and blah, blah, blah. And then everything just fell apart. And then he ended up having to make this, fairly small movie that tackles these huge themes and I think all that's to the benefit because what happens at the end of this movie is pretty much unlike anything else I've ever seen and ever experienced and that kind of death is the road awe thing gets transmuted into like cinema is the road to awe in a way in which is like a, a, a dumb thing to say perhaps but I was breathless from the second he stabbed that tree and like, you know, sucked down that that sap and then you know, all the flowers came out of him and then it just goes to those those f- miracle chemical reactions, filmed chemical reactions that they transposed over this thing like you you know, laid over the top of that ball with the tree and oh, it's just fucking crazy and then he's in the Buddha position and he's sitting there and he's meditating and then it explodes and it's just fucking golden and the one of the great film scores I mean this this movie has there's just so little to this movie you know what I mean like it's this movie has like you know Clint Mansell outdoes himself in the sense that he's got like two themes that he just runs through most of the movie in one version or another, you know what I mean? It's not like a bunch of stuff going on. Um, he doesn't have like a, it's not like a Johnny Greenwood score, you know what I mean? Where there's like 15 themes and then he kind of touches on them here and there and there's all these single things that don't exist but they kind of match and I all mean, this other stuff. I mean, Greenwood runs through Sandalwood and Phantom Thread. No, no, but there's... Seven times. In sure, but there's Phantom also... Thread. There's also a lot of standalone stuff. Yeah. And all the themes sound... And even the ones, the, the repeated themes like Phantom Thread, is manifests itself in five different versions. You know what I mean? With different instrumentation, um, there, there's, different there's tempos. Definitely, there's, there's a higher octave and, and arrangement to it, yeah. This is just a pulse. I'm saying it's, this as a person who just recently started learning piano. So you there you go, yeah, me, yeah. You, you can call me out on my There's no, but, but, but like all that stuff is all that stuff is true. You know what I mean? He just moves it up and down on the keyboard. He puts different instruments there, and but it's the same theme. But everything stands alone. And this one doesn't even do that. It's just like lesser and more of like the same, the same kind of churning thing. But I suppose it doesn't even matter except for the fact that it's churned into this fucking miracle. That even now, having seen this movie, I don't know, a hundred times. You think I, you've seen that that much? 
I just watch it all the time. So I have my I have my comfort films. You know what I mean? Like Seven is a comfort film. Like Catch Me If You Can is a comfort film. I don't own it, so I don't watch it all the time. But like it's like that. The Fountain for me is a comfort film. My number. Oh, we have to talk about that. My number. I forget which number it is in the upper. So my yeah my my seven. Seven, four, and one are my comfort films now. Right. And so I have movies up there too that are my comfort films. But this, I mean, this is, for me, is one of my comfort films. And I just, I just can't, when it's on, I can't stop watching because it, it, even when it gets, there's like periods where it kind of seems like it's going to not work. And we can kind of talk about like what those scenes are and stuff where it seems like the first two acts. (laughs) Well, not even like the first two acts, but just like a lot of the, a lot of the medical stuff and a lot of the, yeah. A lot of the Izzy kind of just, you know, it just seems so ham-fisted that you're just like, okay, well that's... They say, I should shut you down. I say I should shut you down. It's like Ellen Burstyn. Calm it down. Relax. Bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it in a little. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining on the set, like, Hugh Jackman being like, oh, jeez, okay. Chill out. <laughs> this is not that intense. Um... But they all kind of, it's, it, I think one of the glories of this movie is that it's, uh, it, it seems so very much not what it was supposed to be. And Aronofsky kind of knows it, and he's doing the best that he can. And he happened upon the perfect leading man for, like, just trying to get the most out of whatever you can get out of it. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine this with Brad Pitt. I, it would be fucking awful. Yeah. Um, you need someone who's going to give 150,000% of himself to something as stupid as I'm going to fix death. You need a vulnerability that Brad Pitt would never offer. But like, not just a vulnerability, but like a, a like a real, like a walking around open wound. Like a ruin. Yeah, yeah. ruin. Yeah. Um, but also like trying to keep it together. And that's where, like... But what enhances the ruin. Exactly, exactly. So it's like an oozing ruination. He's just kind of, like, drifting around, like... Like this just sad, totally weird, toxic masculinity. To the point where, like, when it goes into the future and into the past, like, regardless if that's the same person or not, you can feel that, like, coming... It's, like, radiating off of this present-day Tommy no. and just kind of infecting these two people. But the end... I can't, I can't... I still can't process the ending, man. It is. It is, like... And it's probably like a lot of other things in film, but as far as what I understand film to be and what I have seen, it's unlike any of the other things that I have enc- I had encountered up to that point, and I, that I've still encountered. So there's a million movies that end amazingly, and like Aaron Aronofsky is one of my guys. So you know we're running into your guys. This is my last Aronofsky film. I think I have four other ones on here. Um, Mother, The Wrestler, Requiem for a Dream, and this. I mean, I had Requiem and this on my list. Um, So he's a big deal. He's done this in other movies. You know what I mean? He's and he's he's. I mean, Aronofsky's our guy, right? Like both of us. He does good endings, and even like something like Black Swan, which is a movie I hate. I love Black Swan. Got a good ending. Like I think the only Aronofsky movie I don't like is Noah. Yeah, I have like no opinion on Noah. It's one of those things where like, I'm just kind of like not... I will not let myself have an opinion on it. I can find things to like about it. Yeah, um, similar. Yeah. Um, 
But I think one of the... So, there's a re... I want to do this. I think one of the things that... One of the reasons that I can kind of enjoy the ending so much, or one of the reasons that I do enjoy the ending so much, is that I don't necessarily find it to be a movie about dying. It's a movie about death, but it's not necessarily a movie... For me, it's not a movie about dying. For me, I think, and this kind of goes along with everything else that we're going to talk about, it is a movie about art. And, you know, you have your politics and your relationships, and I have my art and my existential internal crises. Um... I don't know. I, I love the Wikipedia page for this movie because it seems so definitive on what everything means. I, I basically bled this Wikipedia page on my episode. <laughs> is, we'll get into that in a bit. Um, I don't... I think, it's, I think it's pretty clear to me. While simultaneously I understand why it's like not clear, but it's clear to me. Or in terms of like what I feel like this movie is representing and what this movie is saying is that the past stuff... Is the book? It's not real. Past stuff is a book. She has written very obviously up until chapter twelve. But chapter like up until chapter twelve, it is you know death is the road to awe. She he gets to that point. Blah blah blah. Everything that happens after that is Tommy ending the Tommy ending the thing. Um, he becomes flowers at the end of it. Everything that happens in the future is an expression of present Tommy's trying to work out in his head post Izzy's death every fucking crazy stupid thing that she's ever said to him. And we talked about this in episode yeah. 49 too. About Sebulba, about, you know, the Mayans, about the Spanish Inquisition, like whatever he's read in the book, whatever she said, you know, you get that that lovely, brutal scene where he's, you know, piercing himself with the fountain pen. You know, the fountain. Oh, fucking love it. Um, it goes all the way up his arm. Why does it go all the way up his arm? Not because he's been alive forever and is drawing on himself. It goes all the way up his arm because he's thinking about it. He can't stop thinking about it. He just keeps piercing his flesh over and over and over again in his mind, trying to process her death. And then that moment when everything explodes and he becomes this other thing is that moment that he processes it. So when he plants that tree, he's not planting a literal fucking tree, Wikipedia, that blossoms into this thing that he takes in the goddamn fucking space. It's, he's figured out a way to process her death, to live with her death by bringing, like, new life into this world. And that's as far as and that's as far as it goes. To me, that has way more value than the idea that it's like he's living forever, and he's you know bursting into golden flames in the sky when he finally reaches this thing and blah 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 blah. Um, because that I mean, there's like a whole bunch of like dystopian narrative stuff that has to go into explaining like how he was able to preserve this tree, so there was no. Nothing bad ever happened anywhere, and this tree was able to live, and he was able to like develop this bubble technology or something. Or is that what? Is that what? But is this what you took from it at the moment? What I took from it at the moment was nothing. What I took from it at the moment was pure visceral bliss, which is like 
which is one of the things I can remember, like when I watch this movie now, is I still, it's, and I think it's, I don't know how you feel about this, is one of the arbiters that I use now in terms of like if a movie is working is how often I look at my phone. So if a movie is working, even a movie that I've seen like a million times, like we're going to talk about Amadeus later, maybe in 2021, probably in 2021. Um, I've, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen Amadeus. I don't look at my phone once when I watch Amadeus. I'm just looking at the F. Murray Abraham, man. Uh, I have not. I've looked at my phone like three times. We're talking about my number one. That movie is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm. Exactly. I. And this is one of those movies for me where I'm. I, I'm just gone. And it's one of the things that, like, when I, I watch it. So I've watched it, like, in the. I've obviously shown my wife. And I just watched it in her. I tried to watch it once in her presence, and she was just kind of like. Can you turn that down? And I wanted to be like, no, I can't fucking turn it down. How I need... She, how she... How she... She likes it. She doesn't care. She's very comfortable with herself. <laughs> so she doesn't have to have... She doesn't have any feelings about like... She doesn't love it though? or she's She doesn't like... care. She's indifferent to it. But this, she's not like a movie person. She likes movies and she likes to like watch movies, but she doesn't... She's not a loser like us. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, but I think that's, I, I, I go, I always go, I can go right back to that, that moment where just it's, it doesn't, nothing matters anymore. It's just the, uh, the way that though that light, remember when he's like looking up into the sky after he's drank the, he's drank from the trees, drank the sap and he looks up and he's about to put the ring on his finger. It looks like a fucking puppet show. It looks like it's made of goddamn fucking paper, that hole in the sky. It looks like. It's a, it's a like a thousand ring lights have just suddenly shone down upon him. Yeah, that for me is film. That's it. So actually, it's in a lot of ways a perfect, like you know, it's part of a weird Venn diagram that we've created here, Mario. Where for me, the fountain is movies, like and. I've got obviously there's movies that are going to come after this where they're not doing anything close to what the fountain is doing. The fountain is silly in a lot of ways, narratively and just kind of like, you know, historically. Um, but I don't even worry about that because I'm doing my best impression of like Pauline Kale or something when I watch this, and I'm just responding to the visual stimulation the oral stimulation the all-around sensual stimulation of being a part of this thing it doesn't matter that hugh jack most of hugh jackman's lines are ridiculous hugh jackman delivers them great it doesn't matter that most of rachel vice's lines are ridiculous when rachel vice is is adorned in her queen's garb and lit like she's lit it is uh incredible it's fucking incredible um, you know, even like the the little things. Like, remember when Stephen McHattie as the Inquisitor, like they're they're he's like giving that speech and they're like pulling those guys up. They're 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 holy shit! That's Stephen McHattie. Yeah. Two thousand six, big year for Stephen McHattie. Uh they're pulling those guys up. You know what I mean? They're like the the heretics. They're I watched, them on the spikes. I watched that today. I did not realize that was Stephen McHattie. He's 
all the way in. Wow. Did you think it was Paul Bettany? No, I just I, I thought it was just somebody. <laughs> Whipping himself. Oh, that's impressive. Good job, Steve McGetty. Um Man, I love Steve McGetty. You know that guy they show? It's when they're showing Hugh Jackman, they're pu- pushing in on Hugh Jackman in that little eye hole thing. There's a guy just like Writhing. shaking. Yeah. Ugh. I, I can't even take it. It's I find it so disturbing. More disturbing no, I, than I, anything yeah, that happened in Possessor. You know what I mean? Way more disturbing. It's just a guy that hanging... The entire scene is more disturbing than anything yeah. in Possessor. It's just a guy hanging upside down by his feet. Like, you know, and it's clearly fake. It's clearly a backdrop. It's clearly whatever. You know, he ran out of money at that point. He was just in a tiny little set. That's the the beauty of that kind of making of... Um, the making of documentary is that he it shows that he was just working on like a shoestring here. He was just kind of putting it together. He was trying to get everything in a shoestring of thirty five million dollars. But for that type yeah, of no, a movie for, that size, yeah. it's a shoestring. Yeah. Um, it's horrifying. Like I just I find this stuff so like I find everything so viscerally. It just it just fucking hits me. Like you know that opening scene where you know Tomas is kind of storming the. The, the steps of the temple and everyone's dying and then they pick him up. It's all, it's still so affecting. And even like, you know, the hair aspect of it is like, you feel like you can kind of touch that, like that tree that you, you, you know, it reaches out. For it's him. just, it's, it's, it's so intense. Um, there's a weird, like Scott Smith, uh, ruin style. that's mm. going to it. Yeah. I like that book. That's a good book. I almost, I'm gonna. It's a fucked up book, but it's a good. I'm gonna book. get it on audiobook so I can read it again. But that's I. Uh, that book I'll, fucked me up, man. I'll finish. That's a that's a pivotal top ten book for me. If we talk about pivotal it. books, well, you know, when we finish the movie, we'll transfer. We'll switch to pivotal books for like a little bit, and then we'll go back to pivotal film. Um, but that's where I say that's where I think I kind of get the idea that it's it's easily defined for me, but it's also kind of hard to define in the sense that that those visceral feelings that sensation that comes with having uh, of watching this movie yeah i can't put it like a reason for it you know what i mean like i there's no nothing that happened in my life that made me more susceptible to finding like pleasure or you know terror or but just kind of just like an overall film joy watching those moments um i can't i can't i can't name it and i can't point to a reason for it but it's profound so it when you've watched so when you watch those moments in film you you don't look for something in your own life to connect them to no so that's like i was watching another my another one of my movies in my top five recently um this is again another movie and i have the reasons and they'll be totally in line with like stuff we've talked about but there's lots of things that i can't i can't put a finger on it's just it's just perfect it feels perfect like there's no thing like and i suppose i might say that i want to know that or that in some context i may have known it at one point but i can't point to a single moment and say like this speaks to me because of this thing or this event or this like emotion it's just kind of this thing and that's where that's where film i think is different for me than than music and books is that there's sometimes you can just feel something like kind of in you when you watch a movie and you don't necessarily know where what it is it's just 
it's just fucking there. Just in the gut, yeah. Just, yeah. And it's just like, you know, you can kind of feel it under your skin and like crawling around on you and you're like, well, this is doing its job. But you don't necessarily know what it is. And I think, I mean, that's like, I think that's like a perfect summation of why High Life spoke so intensely to me. Is that it just like got all the way under my skin and just like hung out there for 10 months. Um, and like The Fountain is one of those movies. The Fountain is just hung out there. For, this movie is 14 years old. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's what I find fascinating about Fountain is the fact that like I, I – well, because you said you have a different experience watching it this time than you did the yeah, first time, um, or when we talked about it on the list. So when I came into this movie, you know, eleven months ago, well, no, now fourteen months ago, mm-hmm. Jesus, like I had a lot of abstract feelings about it, um, mm-hmm. in the sense of like I talked about like a generalized anxiety, blah blah blah, and like this really encapsulates my feelings of death. And uh, bigger thoughts of like something more than that. Um, and now, like re-listening to the episode in preparation for this podcast, and watch this movie back a couple times, I remove all of that mm. um, because I'm in a much different place in my life mm-hmm. um, for reasons unpodcasty, um, <laughs> and uh, but also for reasons like worldly mm-hmm. where now I look at it as just like this really tense love story. Mm. Like that's all that speaks to me now. Mm. It's just, uh, you know, Tom Creel just like fighting for his wife. Now. Mm-hmm. And that's all that matters to me now about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first two acts now seem a little more hokey to me. Uh, like Ellen Burstyn just shouting out to the fucking wall exposition. I should shut you down. Da- they say that I should shut you down. I should shut you down. And I'm like, face desk. Well, yeah, part of me wants to be like, yeah, the government. Would, a year later, the government shoots him down because you can't just give monkeys cancer anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, and you look at that in the first two acts, like, you know Ethan Suplay and all that, like popping in. Just like we're gonna get this done. I love, I love the, I love like the extra cast in this movie. It's yeah, so good. Um, but when Izzy gets to the hospital and is gonna die, mm-hmm. everything after that just becomes so intensely now real to me. Um, and you get that whole, you get that call back. To the scene where Ethan Sue plays like, um, you know, he's the the monkey's whatever I can't remember his he's name. Prep. Uh, I don't forget what his name is. Yeah, is prep for surgery and he looks out back and is like going to run after her and mm-hmm. I'm like run after her and like every. I look at this movie now more as like the sad love story and I still see it has this movie told in the circumstance of of present Tom mm-hmm. Korea, you know, just yeah. just just a person who's kind of like feeling the guilt of what he could have done versus what he decided to do. Well, it ends with him. I mean, it's there's yeah. no reason it's, to assume that it ends in the future. It doesn't end in no. the future. It ends when he plants that that seed. And there's definitely a dividing narrative. And and the fucking the fountain scene, the fountain pen scene fucking destroyed me tonight. Oh, it's amazing. Why we watched it cuz I was like watching that me going Me too. Like 
having felt that way now, um, that ruined me. You know, like having felt like what that could feel like, mm-hmm. like watching him just like sit there and just fucking dig into his skin, yeah, cry and ruin himself, and then redig back into his skin after that, like that got to me. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a th- the thing that works for me for this movie. And that's why I'm I'm happy to still have it on my list and probably should have had an eye. I don't know. Um, it is where it is, but. It, it, it works on so many levels mm. um, because it, it operates on so many levels. It operates on this really metaphorical level in terms of the fear of death, in terms of the fear. It, it, it works in a way where a person can confront it in multiple different points in their life. Mm-hmm. And I think when I approached it a year or so ago, I was in a very different point in my life. And mm-hmm. now when I approach it where I am now, I'm approaching it in a different way, but there there is a real earnestness to it. Oh, it's so earnest, yeah. Um, but in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's another thing these two movies have in common this week, is that they're both crazy earnest. All three movies. I think even... Possessor's Possessor very is earnest. Possessor's really yeah. earnest, too. Um, you know, there's an earnestness to it where you can, you can either, you know, brush it off and be done with it, which mm-hmm. is fine, or you can really find a connection to it. Um... And I found a new connection to it. Um, that being said, we didn't talk about this when I talked about it, but like technically, holy shit, does this movie work on so many levels? Well, I mean, and like Clinton yeah. Ansel's score, um, this is the to me the second best score of the century so far. I I'm always gonna you know die on the cross that is johnny greenwood's score for phantom thread i might too i mean now that like having spent like a bunch of time with it and stuff like that um even more so than uh not the master what i can't remember what you had the best score of your decade well i definitely didn't have i didn't have the uh, master with your five i had remember your number i think i might have had high life as my number one high life was like your two or one yeah i mean the tinder stick stuff the Stuart stables claire denise shit is fucking crazy well you also really connect to scores that are working in operation with the film in sense well, which I, the tinder stick score is doing is the tinder stick score is working in such like it's part of the perfect movie. operatic yeah. tonality with the movie what well, i think is an interesting it's an interesting um comparison that you can make to something like this with something like possessor where you there is clearly a score happening but you don't you're not always aware of it because there's so many other sounds happening alongside of it where the Stuart Staple stuff I feel stuff I feel belongs in that category, but even more so where Stuart Sable being Tindersticks. Okay. He's the Tindersticks guy. Um where it feels like natural sound. It doesn't feel like a score. It feels like it just goes to whatever is happening mm. on screen at that moment. It's just the sound that that image makes. Um the, this Clint Mansell thing is is overbearing, but in the best possible way i mean it is when it gets cooking there at the end of this movie it is it is sublime you can't even understand how much narrative weight it carries i i look at this i i think um clint mansell and john murphy in a lot of the mid to late 2000s and early 2010s carry a lot of weight behind them Mm -hmm. uh you know john murphy doing like the sunshine score doing this stuff with 28 days um 
I think John Murphy's doing a lot of heavy lifting in those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think John Murphy's doing heavy lifting. I think Clint Mansell's working here because he's done this with like Ben Wheatley later on in High Rise. He just works in real perfect symmetry mm-hmm. with with what he's with his filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, but Arnofsky kind of knowing the limitations of his budget or knowing the limitations of what he's working with mm-hmm. allows the bombasticness of this film to carry through. Death right. is the Road to Awe is probably the best single it's film perfect. score of yeah. the century. Well, just that one even... I don't even know what you would call it. The one... The two measures where... Like the... Those... Dun, it's... Dun, 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 dun. Not even that. It's dun. when that... When... I don't know, violins or whatever goes... It's just fucking perfect. So what is that, like D, E, flat? I don't even know. But it's it's amazing in its simplicity, but it's also amazing in how much he... Like, how much shit he layers on top of that. It's just doing... I think the great thing... One of the things I always like about movies is when the images and the sound are doing something similar. Might be E, F flat. You are you are bogged down now. <laughs> um, when the music and the images are doing something similar, in the sense that they're so in this instance, it's adding. La- they're both consist of unknowable layers. Like so, I have no idea what it took to get those chemical reactions to on the screen at the same time as a bubble with a tree in it and. Hugh Jackman dancing around inside of it. I have no idea what it like, what is happening underneath whatever the Kronos Quartet is doing, and they're obviously doing all of it. But there's something else happening inside of that, which makes it um, haunting and beautiful, and also entirely profound. And but in a way that you can't ever really kind of understand, and you know that like while you're watching it, you're like, I don't get it. But yeah. I, but that somehow makes it even more substantial. That like it's, it's you can't wrap. It almost makes it like a religious well, experience how, where you how, can you have to have faith that there's how you did know that what's there. Respond to you when you first saw this. I bought the soundtrack. I mean, that's how it. That's how it responds. Is that literally I mean, I, for I me? Say, I would say the first time I saw this, like beyond everything, the soundtrack was the thing that spoke to me. Yeah, and like I kind of like framed a narrative around it, and I still like frame a ra- narrative around it, but like the narrative's more making sense. I'm just wondering, the first time you saw this, like, how much that play a role? I literally went out the next day and bought the soundtrack. I mean, it's, and so that's... In every movie... A lot of movies on the list that are coming up and that have already happened, if it's... If it's in... If I, if I know that it's in here, in my head and in my heart, I'm going to go out and get the soundtrack I think that started with like American Beauty where I watched American Beauty and I was like I need to live with this it's not enough to go to the movies I need to I need to exist with it in my like in my life um and it's weird because that didn't happen with my number one because I don't even know what that soundtrack is doing or what the score is name who does that I don't even know it's probably someone that we know Keep talking. Um, but it's definitely true for like most of the other, most of the other. So and sometimes it's not a score. Like my number two, there's no score. So that's just a soundtrack. That's just a record. Um, 
but in a lot of instances, it is. Oh, I'm sure it's like a workman. It's like a workman like one, right? And now I have to know. Um, but in a lot of instances, that's how I know. That's like how I know the thing. Oh, oh, that's good. It's workman. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it actually doesn't even sound like him, which is funny because that's not like a traditional that guy score. Um, Wait, just making sure. This is still your number one? Yeah. Okay. It's not a traditional that guy score. And that's funny because he actually shows up a bunch of times on my top ten. Well, yeah. No, for sure. Um, which, which we'll talk about whenever we do our number <laughs> we'll we'll one next week. Um, it's, As our five listeners go like, they know. They've, no, they've already got it figured out. They write it down right next to Mario's number one is they. They had your number one even before you saw that movie. They were just like, "This guy's gonna." I know it. I've been listening to hundreds of hours of this thing. I know what's going on, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, and that's happened a couple of times. With, so it happened with Requiem for a Dream, like intensely. And I love that. Song. I mean, I, I think I think this this score leaves Requiem in the wake. I think it's, I, I think I think, I think they're similar. Has, they're similar, and they're doing like, similar Lux things. Eternal has, but they're they're they they function. It's Chronos Quartet. It functions in the same way, but the context is different. Mm-hmm. The context is so different. I mean, that's a synthetic expansion of the mind that the that the soundtrack is the score is kind of trying to illustrate this is beyond like chemicals this is which is funny because you know it's all chemicals going on in the background um this is spiritual this is faith you know what i mean and it's not i suppose it's probably close to maybe and that's an unexplored thing that i just mentioned that we're not going to do another two hours on this podcast about but like maybe this relates to like Maybe one of the reasons I, this movie speaks to me is because it relates to my non-faith in stuff, where I have like this really intense spirituality, but not a specific belief in one thing. And this movie Which kind is of similar to what me right, but this movie kind of rejects the idea. This movie kind of re- it clearly rejects Christianity. Christianity will literally hang you from your feet and drop you on a spike. But it also well, the Tommy Coffee. Cl- yeah, Tommy clearly does not understand. Anything that Izzy's saying about the Mayans or or like how they approach death or anything like yeah. that. You know what I mean? It's kind of this anti-faith, which in and of itself is a kind of faith. So, I, I mean, people can get in our face about like how we feel about The Fountain. The Fountain is a deeply flawed movie, I think. You think people but get it's in also our face an, about the fountain? Well, no one's ever gotten in our face about anything. We've put some weird movies on our list, like The Accidental Tourist, which I don't regret. I have no regrets about The Accidental Tourist, but like no one's ever said anything about us. But I think The Fountain's one of those movies that people think is like a joke. Where not anymore? Maybe not anymore. But like at the time, it was like so. I'm. We're not doing this podcast back in 2006. So I'm, I'm, I've been putting together this kind of writing project for myself so I can work even when like I'm home with like my kids. 
and it's about a record. And at the time, it was a record that I thought was going to be humongous, and I was very excited for. But then when all the reviews came out, it was a lot like The Fountain, where everyone was kind of like, this movie stinks, or this record stinks, or this record is trying way too hard. And it was kind of like making fun of the record. And I remember that when The Fountain came out, like, nobody liked The Fountain. And I think it's got a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes, got milling, right? milling. But everyone was like, what's this guy doing? You know what I mean? Like, he went from I mean, Pie out- to Requiem for a Dream, and then he's making this... It just it came out in the same time frame as Pans, so yeah. But it was also like I don't know. I think people thought Darren Aronofsky was going to make different movies, and then he ended up making this crazy Hugh Jackman movie. And then with you know this crazy ending and all this other stuff with multiple times and you know blah blah blah. I mean, and so people number, felt away about number it. One people's opinion don't fucking matter, so. No, but it's it's funny that because there's I listened to a, a podcast about my number one something that, that just came out recently. And look at people's opinions now on your number 11. Like people consider your number 11 to be like an this important, movie? An important ask. Yeah. Do you mean The Fountain? Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I'm mentioning it so obtusely. But like they consider it to be a really important aspect of film now when like. They. And. And that's the thing. I think the beauty of the fountain is that I don't even care. I mean, a movie we're going to talk about on my list in a couple of weeks. I thought I was like, oh yeah, I'm really digging in deep, and now it's going to. Oh, I know. Me. And I feel so bad for you because, like, you were. The <laughs> I don't f- give a shit. No, but you were the first one. As far as I'm concerned, you were like there when it came out. People were just like, oh yeah, Fred Melman, that's cool. And then that was it. <laughs> like, what a weird movie. Who cares? You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's important. But now everyone's like, well, this is one of the great movies of modern cinema and blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't feel bad for me. It shaped who I am. No, but I feel bad that, like, you aren't given more credit for knowing before all these other motherfuckers that, like, this movie's significant. Don't need it. (laughs) Very good. But that's it. The Fountain. You got anything else? Fountain? No. um, It's great. I feel like we should stab each other. Stomachs. Like, I'll be Stu Mocker, you be Billy Loomis. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta bring in that Scream reference. Let's do On it. On the week when Scream 5 closed out its production. So Is excited. Nev Campbell in it? Yeah. Oh my god. You also said fifth, are you really? You also said fifth sequel, by the way. And yeah, fifth sequels are too much. Four sequel? Are you actually fine. excited about this movie? I'm super fucking stoked. But you know it's going to be terrible, right? I don't think so. How is it going to be good? Is Matthew Lillard in it? No. Probably. Wait, did we all make a bet? That it's going to be good? I will make a beer bet that I like it. <laughs> well, you're, that's, that's not like objective at all. You know I'll be honest. If I don't like it, I will... Buy the beer. That what does week. like it mean? Like I will unconditionally like it, or say like I love scream movies, so I like this. No, I I think I will unconditionally like it because it's it's from the directors of Ready or Not. It's I think I will unconditionally like it. Why are they doing this? Be, because they only made Ready or Not. <laughs> no, no, not them. But like, why are why is anybody doing this? That's it. Yeah. Which is weird because Scream Four didn't make a prop like a good enough. Problem. Well, nobody cares anymore. 
Well, yeah, you, but you don't count. <laughs> but I will unconditionally like it, and if I don't... Again, we talked about a Polish movie the other night that was doing... That guy was essentially quoting Jamie Kennedy from the original Scream. No. Um, this is just part of what horror movies are, where in 1993, 5, 4... What year did that Scream come if- out? Six. 19, December 96. Where friend. 1996 was interesting for a horror movie to be vaguely meta about itself. No, apparently... This is... In 2000 and whatever, nobody cares anymore. No, the thing about the upcoming Scream that they're saying is it's not meta at all. Like, they just said, this is a straight whodunit slasher movie. So Sydney has no... Uh, recollection of having had conversations with her friends like many no. times about the nature of horror movies and how her life was similar to it. I don't know. <laughs> I just figure. <laughs> Listen, we, we reviewed Ready or Not. I you liked it. it. Yeah. I love Ready or Not. Uh, we talked about Scream. I love Scream. The, the entire Scream series. Yeah. I think those two mixed together could create uh, something that's good. I'm sure it'll be entertaining. I mean, we'll be doing this podcast bar one of our deaths in January 2021. We sure will. 2022. 2022. Oh. Yeah, we might not even get to our number, my number ones by then. Yeah. Who knows? Who the fuck knows? Uh, yeah. No, I think if I dislike it in any way, I will buy beer for a month. Okay. <sighs> you took your mask off. <laughs> that got hard hours ago. Um, it's funny. I can sit in, at work with my mask on for like four hours and not talk, but to talk, it builds up this film like on my face. A film that you could talk about at Film Pivotal or Twitter. Or if you have COVID, you can. You should tell us at pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com, and we'll tell you to go get tested. Uh, or you go to pivotalfilm.com, which I have not updated in a long time. Um, uh, recently. Not super recently, but yeah, recently but enough. Yeah, weird. I don't know. I have trouble just like sitting and just updating the website. Um, and you can look at lists, our lists, and see if they're your lists. Anything, see if there's anything that you want to watch on them. List of the beers that we drank, uh, how to subscribe, stuff. Um, we got a lot of new movies coming up. We're in kind of a uh, a good period. Yeah, we here. should be talking about this. Um, so there's a good chance that coming up very shortly, Tom and I will be going remote again. Yeah. Out of responsibility because we're not in fucking South Carolina. Well, we're not in South Carolina, but our state is the same color, just about, as South Carolina. Yeah, because of South Carolina. Yeah. Um, so we're probably be doing two more list episodes maybe yeah we'll see and then we'll be going remote. we'll see what ned has to say over the next week or so yeah regard uh, regardless we'll do list episodes even if we go remote but mm-hmm. uh, through the month of december we'll be going remote there's enough new movies that we can talk about well so i think everything everything that we thought was going to come out from an independent standpoint not like a major studio stuff although the scuttlebutt is that wonder woman is coming hbo max um, no, but I'm saying like from a, a major... Ex- describe what I'm doing right now. I'm not going to do that. Everyone knows what you're doing. Um, from a major like Megan a major studio release standpoint, that's the one we got. So we've got a lot of, I think, really... I don't know how good they're going to be, but we have a lot of really interesting movies 
coming yeah, out. Dece- like, December like, through January, like almost re- every week. Literally are, are filled to the brim. I have a... Steve McQueen has five new movies coming out on Friday. They're just going to show up on Amazon. Five new Steve McQueen movies. But yeah, so we might take a a departure. We will take a departure from the list through the month of December and early January. We'll come back. We'll come back to do our best of. And then we'll reconvene end of January. End of January. We'll finish this list sometime in middle of the year yeah we'll get there do you really care no no if you're listening to this podcast you're like i want them to end you can stop listening at any point um spoiler it's my number one no why do you do that (laughs) that's an easy one all right uh listen to or watch a movie drink beers his number one's pineapple express I didn't say nice things about it before, but that was just a ruse to keep people off the scent. Uh, and we will talk to you next week.